Hey everyone, this is just a brief announcement that we've changed our chat room location. We're now hash Foss and Crafts on irc.libera.chat. So basically, same chat room name, but we moved IRC servers. We updated the outro so it reflects a new chat room location for this episode. Uh, eventually, maybe I'll get around to updating the rest of them. Maybe I'll eventually script it so I never have to redo things like this again. In the meanwhile, we've got an episode to get to, with guests and everything. Right, where's that intro music? Hello, welcome to Foss and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, Chris. So, I got a message from my friend E. Hashman a while ago uh, asking if we might be interested in a Foss Stitch style episode. And I think that's pretty, that's pretty much right up like a Morgan Alley type thing. And it seemed interesting to me. And also it seems just like completely in line with our show. So we're going to welcome to the show Katie and Alana, uh, who uh, would you like to introduce yourselves respectively? Sure. Hi, I'm Katie. I'm not in America, as you can tell by my accent. But for the purposes of this podcast, I am a Python Software Foundation fellow and a crafter. And I'm Alana, and I am in America, which you also can't tell from my accent. I'm also a Python Software Foundation fellow, and I'm an open source hacker. And in very opposite time zones, right? We're pretty close. I am in the future. I am in the past. So, Foss Stitch, that's an interesting phrase. Uh, would either of you like to kind of open things up by kind of defining what you think of relative to that phrase? And actually, I'll put E. Hashman on the spot, since E. Oh. Hashman's the one who uh, came to me with the idea. Yeah, happy to be put on the spot. So, I sort of recently picked up cross-stitch again. I used to do it as a child, uh, and my mom was going over some of, I think, my elementary school uh, portfolios and found these wonderful notes from my classmates about how great my cross-stitches were. And I thought that was really funny because I haven't done it for years. But during the pandemic, I needed more hobbies. So I decided to pick up cross-stitch in the fall of last year. I bought a bunch of... Uh, kits on Etsy initially, and then, you know, I had gone through a bunch of these, and I was like, well, what if I want to kind of stitch some of my own stuff? Like, can I take images and turn them into my own patterns? And I discovered that the world of free software for such things is a little bit limited. Mm -hmm. And so I was drawn to trying to find free and open source software in order to be able to generate these sorts of patterns and things to work on. And I remember that I had gone to a talk at PyCon a couple years prior, or a year and a half prior, I guess. And Katie had spoken about this awesome software she'd written in Python called Ich. And it's really cool. You can take basically any image and using the power of Python and Pillow, it'll turn it into a cross-stitch pattern with an appropriate palette using uh, DMC cotton embroidery floss or wool or any number of other things, even Lego bricks. And so that kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of how can I support my cross-stitching habit and hobby with free software? So 
Katie, would you like to tell us a little bit more about Ich? Ich is a long story. Many, many years ago, I started doing tapestry embroidery. So for those that are unfamiliar with the wonderful world of cross-stitch, cross-stitching is stitching in a cross. You go from top left to bottom right and then bottom left to top right. Half-stitching is where your medium is so large that you only need half a stitch to fill the space you're in. This lends itself very well to pixel art depictions and other such fun and wonderful things. So I made a one and a half meter long Pokemon cross stitch back in the day, but the software that I was using at the time for that, this is like 2011, the software I was using was Windows only, and I did have a Windows setup at the time, but I had a whole bunch of issues with the fact that, well, the software I was using was Windows only. It wasn't very accessible. I had to have the software loaded and zoomed into the actual software. I couldn't export it. And the palette that I was using, because I normally work in DMC Wool and DMC Floss, doesn't have a one-to-one mapping. So at my first open source conference I ever spoke at, there was a set of lightning talks where they wanted anyone to speak on anything that wasn't tech. So there was a talk about baking, there was a talk about someone's choir group, and I was talking about this issue that I had where I had this software that I could use, but it wasn't going to be very scalable for me because Windows only. And so this is the video is still up online and recorded, so I have video evidence of the fact that I said in a talk, if anyone knows how, uh, if, uh, if anyone knows of any software that'll do this, please tell me, otherwise I'll make my own. And then I made my own <laughs> several years later. So this has been an ongoing thing for, oh gosh, a decade now of just wanting to be able to have a bit of kit that will help me accelerate and automate my craftingness and it's spelled i h so i'm really bad at ich. pronouncing things. okay ich. is that is that about right Where, what what's the origin of this very unusual name there is a disney movie called lilo and stitch and there's a character called stitch and one of the lines this character has is a very persuasive argument for one of the antagonists turned protagonist after this particular line of dialogue and the line of dialogue is ich. And it was also uh, an available namespace on the Python packaging index that I could claim for my particular software project. So I called it Ich. Which is very persuasive. Very. I mean, one of the first things that I had noticed, so I, I went and grabbed the software and I started playing around with it. And uh, Katie mentioned that she's mostly worked in like tapestries and wools and I started working on trying to convert some pixel art that I found and was a really big fan of to a DMC cotton floss pattern. But there were some issues with like, I found these colors and it would output these colors. And I'm like, wait, but like there are more colors than this. And like, I could see on the website, like this color is a closer match than that one. Why is it picking that? And I discovered that the cotton floss pattern that had been included was limited to a subset of 256 colors of the full 500 some set for the DMC cotton floss. And I was so puzzled by this. So I started going digging through the source code and discovered that there was a fun 256 color limit 
on palette mode software, uh, which was how Pillow was converting a large scale image down to a cross stitch style uh, palette. Was this literally an 8-bit value limitation? Yes. It wasn't even an 8-bit value limitation, although the software has basically been unchanged since the late 90s. It's like a specification of how you manage palettes in indexed images. It's very weird. I did a bunch of research on this. It's like a software level constraint of how you manage palettes. And like, in theory, you can index to many more colors than that. But like nothing supports a palette larger than 256 colors. And it's really fun because in Pillow, if you start defining your own palettes and you don't overload the entire array of 256 by 3 length list of integers, it will default initialize with a grayscale pattern. And it took me many years to work out in the C code where this was happening. And the fix is to just make sure that you reinitialize the entire palette array. But it's a 256 thing. And the thing that eHashman added to my uh, bit of software is I was defaulting to my palettes with maximum 256 by default as shipped to the user. But what eHashman did was make it so you I shipped the entire palette and on a per image basis, it would reduce down to uh, whatever palette was was most useful for that particular source image. So it was using all available colors, but it can only use at most 256 per image. Yeah, it was a really interesting sort of optimization problem because I knew that there was this 256 color constraint and that was kind of uh, impassable. I couldn't do anything about that. But the image that I was starting with, you know, it was an indexed PNG. It was one of those pixel art images. So it had a very limited palette, like less than 50 colors. So I thought, well, like maybe what I can do is I can go and do a pre-optimization and then make sure, like I can go and match against the full palette and then make sure that those colors always make it into the 256 color palette. And then, you know, Pillow should be free to go, and it'll always have the best colors. So I pulled in some SciPy, and I did a KD tree search on all of the colors, and uh, it works great. So just to back up for a second, for those who don't know, we're throwing around DMC and Pillow a lot. What are these? I can explain DMC if you want to explain Pillow. I'd be happy to. DMC is a French company, which is, let me just pull up the pronunciation, Dolphos Mang en Compagnie, DMC, a French company that started out as a textile company in the 1700s that make, among many things, floss, cotton thread, and tapestry wool. Now, a disambiguation, we are talking about floss as in very thin, colorful cotton strands, not floss as in free, libre, open source software. Yes, I make this pun in my talk. And not flosses in, I need to take care of my dental hygiene either. Although I have seen some art with dental floss, so that's a medium. Indeed. And Pillow is a Python library that's used for image processing. The library was initially called PIL, which stands for the Python Imaging Library. So one thing that I enjoyed about the description Ilana, that you gave with the indexing is that that's like here you're doing something that like that's literally how you're doing a pixel art thing and that's literally how pixel art like programs in like the 16 and 8-bit eras like how they would actually be able to 
handle their color palettes for something that would be on a computer, and yet you're doing the same thing in this program by going into kind of the low-level you know, C code and, and so on to do that. So that, that makes me think about, like, are there other kind of interesting, challenging, or really fun parts of working on this software for, for both of you? Funny you should ask that. The fun that I alluded to in my backstory, origin story earlier, is the fact that a lot of the closed source programs would only have the floss palette and I needed the wool palette. These palettes are complex in their origin. So, like, DMC is a textile company started in the 1700s. They have been an artisan company for how many centuries now, and they do not officially publish palettes of what their individual coded floss strands and skeins map to. So it has been the bane of software developers for decades now, literally, to try to convert it into something a computer can understand. And this is where we get into the fun that is trying to digitize the human visible spectrum. And one of the things that I've been working on as a bit of a a yak shave or an alpaca shave, if you will, uh, Mm -hmm. is trying to get better data. So initially playing around with what Katie had written I worked on ensuring that I could use the full spectrum of this palette, you know, all 500 some colors, despite the 256 limitation. But I still found that I was running into matching issues when I was using the software to find closest matches. And I would find, you know, I'd go to the store, I'd pick up the floss, I'd stare at it and be like, "Mm, you know, this just isn't quite right. Like, you know, the color contrast uh, isn't actually like matching the saturation of these things and what I'm trying to be true to in my image. So I'd go and kind of play around with like a bunch of different possible other color options. And I soon found, having done this a number of times, that the data that we had uh, available, and I've looked at at least three different floss palette digitizations of just the DMC colors, they're just not that true to vision. So one of my fun projects that I've been working on, although I haven't made much progress on, is trying to take photographs of DMC floss and then digitizing those into closer color matches in order to come up with sort of a better representation of the DMC spectrum. And so I've been playing around with that data, which is a really interesting sort of data processing sort of project, uh, but it's certainly challenging. Yeah, it's always fun you when you walk into a, a craft store of whatever your local chain craft store is, and you're like, I need this color and this color and this color. And then you look at the display and they look wrong but then I've had this a couple of times where it's like I know what colors I need and I go to the store and they don't look right because they're under fluorescent lighting and uh, historical painting conservators have this thing where when they're doing touch-ups and such they will make sure that they have similar lighting to where the art is going to be displayed and that is not usually under fluorescence it's under natural sunlight or whatever so like getting gaslit in a spotlight or a Linkcraft or a, or a Joann's about, no, this is what my software said the color is, but it doesn't look right. That was a thing that I've dealt with before. 
That's not even to mention the fact that you had some 10-year-old in there before you who threw all of the floss back in the wrong things after her mom told her she couldn't use them or buy them. Or mixing the dialogues as well. Because these are artisanal crafting companies. There's, there's, I never officially learned how to cross-stitch. I picked it up from word of mouth from um, family members and such. But one of the big gotchas is if you're doing a large project make sure you buy all your threads at once and when you do that make sure they all come from the same die lot because some of these colors are so fine especially when you get to the human skin tone palettes the um, browns and creams differences in die lots of the same color in quotation marks can be visibly different mm-hmm. so it- And this is an issue with just about any sort of fiber arts, too. So if you're looking at yarn or you're looking or if you're making a quilt and you manage to run out of one of your things, good luck finding the same dye lot if you don't have your local store. There's also an interesting tidbit that I learned about recently how uh, DMC floss has typically had, say, 350 colors. Tapestry in the same brand DMC had a lot more variety but for a couple of years there they were only producing about 100 colors and so the fidelity of the colors that you could get in wool was greatly reduced unless you happened to find a store with some of the older stock that was still unused and yet in the last couple of weeks if you go onto the dmc website tapestry wool is now up to 350 available colors again wow so that's fun <laughs> It's been really interesting trying to, you know, order things online or on various different websites or running uh, down to places in person. Honestly, uh, so I have perfect color vision and I definitely find myself constantly like fighting with, you know, my computer monitor says this color, but oh, I also have redshift on. So let me turn that off to try to be like closer to the, the right color. And then I'll actually go and physically look in a store and compare to the photo and compare to the other colors that are physically in front of my face. And it's just so different. And then trying to compare to like different lighting, you know, compared to how I might have it on my wall with like hung under natural light versus the very harsh fluorescent lighting in like a Joanne versus kind of in the back corner of the fabric store in Capitol Hill where I can't quite really see much of anything. So I'm basically just guessing based on my numbers, but it's probably fine, right? So this issue of trying to match colors is not new in crafting or in graphic design or printing or stuff like that. And the most probably commonly known set of color swatches and the industry standard for a lot of printers and graphic designers would be Pantone. But this is a podcast about free software and free culture. And Pantone is a series of color swatches and then matching dyes that are all intellectual property and copyrighted by the Pantone company. Very ambiguous as in terms of how even it could be done so, right? Like, is it trademark or what? So how do we combat that from a free software free culture standpoint with great care (laughs) we need to be able to generate our own data sets like things that are not necessarily under corporate control that would have those limitations 
there's potentially ways that we can help each other out and, uh, you know, be be the own sources of the intellectual property and then share that freely. Uh, it's unlikely, though, that I'm going to be starting my own uh, floss manufacturing company with its wonderful free and open line of colors available. Yeah, so we did find the Open Color Standard, which is a project by Ginger Coons attempting to make a color palette that is open and available, basically a free culture replacement for something like Pantone. Very cool. Which we will link in the show notes. There's a newer one that looks like it's CC BY that um, I'm going to mispronounce this organization that's putting it out if I try to do it. Um, I think it's like Free Farb. I, I bet Morgan will be more. My German accent is not great either. Freie Farb? Free color in German. Yeah, we'll we'll link it in the show notes, but it looks like there are, you know, there are, there are attempts to be able to produce this. But like I think that it's interesting by looking at the example with DMC because unlike the Pantone example where maybe we can have some sort of version where we can figure out some sort of matching with printing, I don't know. Um in in this particular case it's a it's a really clear example that you have to you're working with materials that are actually being put out by a specific company right so like convincing them to adopt our you know free as in freedom color palette is not necessarily going to be a solution another way that we can get consistent colors is to look at things that are not necessarily proprietary and katie you had a story about a kind of unique set of colors that uh, someone wanted to work with. Is that correct? Yeah. So as Alana mentioned, I gave this talk at PyCon US 2019. We'll link to it in the show notes. But um, I gave a lightning talk version of this at a arts and tech mini conference, which I'll also link in the show notes. But one of the questions I got after my talk was uh, talking about the different palettes. It's like, well, what happens if you have, say, different fibers from say an alpaca and could you convert that into a palette and so off the top of my head in question time as you do I said oh well yeah I mean I just have to go to an alpaca farm the person who asked the question runs an alpaca farm and she since went and got the official color swatch of the different natural colors of alpacas and converted that into a chart and I believe the header image for this particular episode is an example of that palette in use. That's awesome. Which is great. I mean, you can't copyright natural colors, right? That, or I mean, theoretically, you can't. That's just the colors that alpacas are. Maybe if they start genetically engineering alpacas to new colors, somebody will, will attempt it. But I want a lime green alpaca. Make it happen. Unrelated to the topic, but I have my own alpaca farm story, <gasps> which is also uh, textile related. So my dissertation, as people who have listened to multiple episodes of this show will know, is on women and textile production in the Roman Empire. And when I started researching that, I learned how to spin using a drop spindle. And my mom also started learning how to spin with me and then kind of like dove feet first into spinning in all of the forms so then she got really into spinning on spinning wheels and processing fibers and all of these things 
And we know some people who own an alpaca farm and they have a annual open farm days. Well, I'm assuming they didn't in the last year because, you know, pandemic. So that means that multiple times my mom and I have gone to this open farm days and set up demonstrations of textile processing and spinning. And my mom gave demonstrations on a spinning wheel, but of course, spinning wheels are very fussy, complex, easy to break pieces of machinery that are very expensive. So you don't want random five-year-olds playing on it. But a drop spindle is literally meant to drop. And if you drop it on the ground, it's not going to break. So that meant that I came up with a technique for teaching five-year-olds how to spin at this uh, open farm event. Aww, that's so cute. So. That was off topic, but I love that we had two alpaca farm stories. Alpacas are adorable. They really are, and so soft. I I mean, the dying and stuff is super interesting, and I'd love to come to one of these open farm days when I'm allowed to travel again. Like, going to a farm and petting an alpaca and learning how to spin yarn would be great. But I am I am such a nerd at heart that this is getting me into the, some of the technical limitations of how it's super interesting to learn how to spin yarn and dye yarn. But if I want to get into cross-stitching, I don't want to have to care when I can just go to a Joann's and pick up whatever colors that my software said I needed. And the fact that there's a talk by the alpaca farm lady talking about how she used ich to make her palettes work with her alpaca farm stuff, but a lot of the talk was dedicated to how my software didn't have sufficient documentation for her to get it to run locally. And this comes into the whole thing about uh, free and open source software where the language of implementation is of no consequence to the end user. So ich as a first party add-on has a hosted service. So you don't have to install. Uh, what are the dependencies now? There's scikit image, scipy, pillow, actually setting up like Python 3 and everything, when you can just go to a URL that I've set up and just upload your image there. And that'll get you going with um, eek, without having to worry about all the Python stuff. And you can then go to your Joann's and pick up the kit that you need and start stitching. Although luckily, thanks to the power of wheels, that is now significantly easier than it was like a decade ago. Just a fun fact about my particular brand of nerd, I have actually done needlepoint with thread that I spun from an alpaca that I met in person <laughs> that was a needlepoint of an alpaca. You're much more hardcore than me. I simply wrote the tooling that allowed the people to package all of that software. Well, I helped to write the tool and I didn't write it alone, that's for sure, to distribute a lot of these things. They're much easier to install for end users because nobody cares about compiling C on different platforms in order to make their Python work because why is their C code even involved anyways? It's a Python package. Yeah, and I think in general you're correct that almost nobody wants to spin the yarn from the alpaca in order to embroider an alpaca. That is a very circuitous route that I took, and very few other people are likely to go through all of that process. Or even if you do, like sometimes there's just limitations that make it sort of infeasible or unrealistic. Like I have rheumatoid arthritis, so 
a lot of repetitive stuff is actually very difficult for me to do. I mean, I struggle to clean my own apartment by myself, let alone weave my own fabric. One of the nice things about cross-stitch is that for the most part, uh, it's pretty accessible. So even though I'm doing hundreds of stitches or something like that, because it's relatively low motion, uh, it's something that I can do for hours at a time, sitting on the couch or something like well supported and not have too much difficulty with, unlike say painting where I need to be seated in a way that requires a lot of energy spent uh, or other sorts of artistic activities. So I'm very thankful to uh, embroidery as sort of an option there for me. Mm -hmm. Something that, that it actually strikes me is that various people are going to have different levels of interest in terms of what kind of low-level exploration they're doing. I mean, some people even, you know, going and picking up ready-to-go materials from Joann's, you know, even that maybe is too much, right? I could just go buy a, an item of clothing. So the exploration as in terms of what specific low-level kind of, of things is maybe, you know, we maybe we should be supporting, you know, kind of a, a broad variety of interests. But but one of the things that also strikes me is that the, the perception of what low level is and isn't seems to be often very gendered in terms of, you know, that the things are considered low level and technically difficult when I think they're kind of more perceived of as being done by men than than by women. And does that speak to your experiences in terms of expectations? Because so far, the descriptions of going into specific C code to deal with palette indexing, that's not like a high-level fluffy experience. That's something that, you know, would be technically difficult for many programmers. I mean, I joked that some of the most technical, mathematical, computationally difficult code I've ever written was like patches that I've submitted to ich, just compared to the sorts of work that I do day to day. And I've done like very low level work on uh, compiling and distributing C and other sorts of binaries, uh, ensuring like symbol version compatibility. I work on Kubernetes. I work on Debian. But like, you know, th this is the sort of stuff that's like, it's really, you know, the really technically challenging stuff. Uh, but because you know, crafts and uh, fiber arts tend to be kind of feminine coded, the difficulty tends to sort of get written off like, oh, you know, you're just like playing with your little fabrics off in the corner. It's like, no, this is like way more technical and difficult than, I don't know, stereotypically male coded similar hobby. I mean, I've given multiple talks at PyCon US, and I think a talk where I have to dive into low-level C about the initialization of color palettes and talking about Euclidean distance of color matching is the most technical talk that I've given at a PyCon, and it's about cross-stitching. Mm -hmm. I, I know I keep bringing it up, but it's kind of been my life recently. Part of my dissertation is talking about the way that gender factored into textile production in the Roman Empire. And a lot of the research about this, say from like 30 years ago or prior, would say things along the lines of like, oh, well, women did the spinning because it didn't take that much skill to do and they could do it while watching children. So that's why women did it. But more recent research is saying, well, no, have you actually spun with a drop spindle? It's not easy. And it's not easy to just like set it down and go catch the kid from wandering into the well. But it's this kind of like dismissal of women's jobs. Well, I have to ask, because I haven't read your dissertation or caught up on some of the recent episodes of these podcasts, but 
Would that have a similar analogy to the more recent slur of spinsters? Yes, that's exactly the etymology of the term spinsters. So Good grief. basically, jobs that women could do in society were fairly limited for a long time. And if you were a woman who didn't get married and therefore didn't have a husband to support her, and you needed to get a job because, you know, your father or your brothers couldn't support you forever then one of the most common jobs available to you would be as a spinner, and spinster is a variation of the word spinner. So yes, that slur literally came from women who had to get jobs because they didn't get married. I mean, this isn't like ancient history or anything. Like To this day, the reason that I can walk into a fast fashion clothing outlet and go pick up a shirt off the rack and pay like $15 for it isn't because that reflects the actual cost of the labor. Like every shirt, every piece of clothing that I own, it's not done by machines. It's done by humans. And it's done by typically women of color in low income countries who don't have a lot of other career options. It's very physically challenging work. Mm -hmm. Are making all these clothes for like pennies. And it's not easy work either. Like Mm -mm. knitting is a thing. 3D exploration of string theory. Like, some of these patterns are complicated. I cannot knit for the life of me. And working out why it doesn't map in my brain is literally, like, I cannot wrap my head around how complicated some of these things can get. Yeah, working on just like a six by seven inch cross stitch pattern, which I think totaled a little over 6,000 stitches, I mean, that took me four months to embroider. Now, granted, I wasn't spending eight hours a day doing it. There would be times that I'd take large breaks and whatnot. But in theory, like, I know all of these things. I have all of this information. But being able to sort of explore the various textile arts and have a chance to actually, like, try it out, it's, like, really, really confounding when I just think of how much labor and energy and effort went to, you know, the creation of my wardrobe, everything that I wear on a day-to-day basis that I kind of, you know, toss on the floor when I'm done with my laundry. I'm not really thinking about, you know, the hours that somebody might have put into sewing that shirt. So it's not my particular area of history, although I have spent quite a bit of time reviewing the portion that is in Morgan's dissertation, because I'm kind of Morgan's unofficial editor, but Morgan's also my unofficial editor of things I write. So we just kind of do that back and forth. But I know something that comes up kind of repeatedly, I think both in Morgan's dissertation about, you know, ancient textile stuff and also kind of transitioning into contemporary experiences about technology and programming is the whole, you know, this is kind of a lightweight, feminine, you know, not taken seriously thing up until it becomes kind of capital S, capital B, serious business TM type thing. And then it's like, oh, this is like a a male field now. And the same thing has happened with, per my understanding, both textile work and also computing work, including uh, massive crossovers between the two. Um, So I don't know, maybe throwing it open to everyone else. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at some of the early computers, so I'm thinking of like some of the craze that were produced, just the wiring or the circuitry for some of those mainframe computers, like that was all done by hand. 
typically by expert seamstresses. And a lot of the components, uh, similarly, like uh, core memory, for example. It was that initial transition from what labor force already exists that knows how to crochet or intricately weave together small wires in a way that makes sense and that labor force came from women who did textile work early coding was related to patterns that were used for jacquard looms too so there were a lot of transferable skills but then eventually once programming went from being a kind of secretarial job to something that was important and made a lot of money suddenly it was perceived as a men's job. Yeah, I mean, this is the whole, you know, unearthed for the first time, only not actually by hidden figures and so on and so forth, both on the like manufacturing side and on the knowledge work side in computing. Uh, women used to have much larger roles in the industry uh, and have been sort of slowly pushed out over time in favor of lower paid role. I mean, even today, right, like there's almost a hierarchy in terms of different fields of programming, where uh, some of the like low level and system stuff that I work on is considered to be very prestigious, and things moving more into like web development or front end development uh, is considered like light and fluffy, when in reality, I mean, if you're working with some of these technologies, the sorts of asynchronous programming that JavaScript developers work on uh, often like would make a backend developer or systems developer's head sort of spin. And frankly, I think working in Golang, like JavaScript has much better primitives to work with this than Go's green threads. So, And trying to make something look good in CSS isn't easy. Mm-mm. Goodness, no. The, the amount of infrastructure that is around now the amount of workflows that are around to make sure that you can like compile and process complex iterative computated CSS before you even get to the part of the CSS that makes the thing look pretty. Mm -hmm. It's not easy, but it's front end. So not to mention UX and UI work. Exactly. Which is incredibly difficult, but like if you want people who are not programmers to use your software, then you need to invest in UX and UI research. Literally, the whole thing earlier about, well, it's a Python CLI, it can work. No, Alpaca Pharma Lady couldn't get it to work, and that is my data point to make sure that it is hosted as a service now, that the technical behind it is I programmatically derive the inputs from the click CLI into a web form, but it's a web form, so it's much more accessible. And that doesn't mean it's any less complex. It's accessible. Accessible doesn't mean easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that Eek is a good intersection between, one, a product that's made for a general audience, right? It's made for a crafting audience, not for programmers. Two, it is a tool to make crafts and three it's free software and you don't necessarily see these interactions very frequently do you less often than i'd like that's for sure there's definitely the having access to a local community of either typical older generation hangouts at the crafting store where you bring in your kit and you discuss and learn these processes by word of mouth traditional storytelling or 
the, I apologize for the swearing in this next sentence, dear viewers, the recent rise of the bitch and stitch sessions. Mm -hmm. If your local city has one of these things, you bring your kit to the pub and you chat and you storytell and you can teach people how to stitch. And I learned how to cast off at one of these events. Mm -hmm. Well, and both Katie and E. Hashman told their kind of stitching origin stories. And mine was actually, I also learned how to do it when I was a child, but I did not have the hand-eye coordination for it at that point, And I got frustrated with it and stopped doing it once I realized that they didn't look good. But it was actually at a Stitch and Bitch at a conference that I picked it back up as an adult. It was not a tech conference. It was WISCON, which is a feminist sci-fi and fantasy convention in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And there was a session at this conference that was like a Stitch and Bitch session where one of the fairly prominent sci-fi authors just gave demonstrations on how to do uh, needlepoint. And I'm like, oh. As an adult, I have much better hand-eye coordination. So these kind of stitch and bitch formats are good ways of knowledge transfer in an informal, low-stakes setting. And it isn't just the non-tech conferences. Like The first lightning talk about ich that I gave was at a dedicated mini-conference as part of Linux Conference Australia, where there was an entire room for an entire day that was an art and tech mini-conf. That one was held in Sydney, and the next day I made sure to bring in my sewing machine, and we had an impromptu hallway session about the history of pockets, and we sewed pockets in the hallway. Fabulous. At the Linux Conference Australia, which is 22 years now of like the premier open source conference in Australia, where there's an entire day to the kernel, an entire day to Debian. And in this year and in subsequent years, there's been a creative arts track. So mm -hmm. that was pretty cool. Hack the planet or hack your wardrobe, as it were. Yes. Yeah, that's amazing. I spent most of uh, the hallway track in giant air quotes because this was a virtual conference at Siegel this year, the Seattle GNU Linux conference, just kind of sitting around stitching, working on my cross stitch. And everybody asked me about it. They were always very interested in what I was working on. It was kind of fun, since that's the only conference that I've managed to go to since I started working on this uh, as an adult again. As a child, I simply did not have the patience for cross-stitch. And even today, my mother says, I don't know how you have the patience for that. Well, even in in-person conferences, I typically bring a small craft project to do, and that has been needlepoint before. I've also done a lot of knitting in the hallway track of conferences. And I tend to draw a lot of attention when I spin on a drop spindle in the hallway track at conferences, which is good for me because I have a hard time networking at these things. I have a hard time bringing up topics of conversations. But if someone wants to ask me about spinning, I can talk for hours about spinning. I mean, I, little fun fact. I recently finally found, hopefully, travel safe scissors. So I can actually, uh, Clover brand is a whole bunch of stuff, including they have a pendant that has a tiny little blade in one of the little delicate things. And yeah. Oh, that is on the US TSA's no fly Dang list. Dang it. Well, <laughs> what I do, however, is I just carry a pair of nail clippers on me. 
because I've never been stopped by airport security for having nail clippers, but they're perfect to cut embroidery floss or yarn. That is a hack. Also, if you're traveling with knitting, use wooden needles instead of metal needles, because if you put wooden needles in a pencil box, then TSA just assumes that they are pencils. I used to travel with a uh, bamboo circular thing, and I didn't get any problems with that. But yeah, it's definitely a thing to like, uh, just you're watching talks, you're actively listening and watching, but you're also fiddling at the same time and you're also knitting Mm -hmm. a sweater or something. Although I've gotten to the point where I can do shawls as well as scarves. Don't ask me to do gloves because, yeah, the I'm still learning how to do all these more complex things, but there's definitely that sort of fidget cube, uh, fidget spinner style thing where, and it's a whole lot more accessible now that there's virtual events because you can have, like, you don't have to cut your knitting halfway across the planet, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, I actually have a project that I specifically do while traveling because I got tired of trying to cart entire knitting or crochet patterns. I just started bringing like a small amount of yarn with me. And while I was on a plane or traveling or whatever, I would just knit a uh, 12 by 12 inch square using my knitting needles as a gauge. And then I go home and I put it with the others. And eventually I will have enough of these squares that I can sew them together. That's cool. It was actually at a Libre Planet conference We were having a conversation about this and someone told me, you know, you could take this a step further and get yarn from whatever place you're traveling to, like local yarn. And then you have a square that you knit while you were traveling that's from that location. I may have been part of a group that went in several trips to a local yarn store in Christchurch, New Zealand, and several of us picked up 25% possum, 75% merino (gasps) yarn. It sheds like nothing else, but it's so soft. I would imagine that's got a very short staple on it, and that's why it sheds so much. Possum hair can't be that long. Yeah, but it's so fluffy. Yeah. I feel like Heidi Waterhouse is kind of the champion of buying textile materials while traveling the world. She brings back all sorts of really cool fabrics. VM Brazil also does the same. I believe I saw one of her stashes from one of her Melbourne trips. It's just like, yes, I will fill the rest of my suitcase with with, um, fabrics. Yes, please. Yeah, I I always pick up either fabric or yarn or both or sometimes rarely because it's harder to find uh unspun wool or alpaca or whatever that i can spin most pandemic goals one thing that's kind of funny about the the stitch and bitch coming up this stuff coming up on this podcast is the kind of origin of this podcast we were kind of originally thinking about maybe doing something else morgan do you want to just actually tell that story And, and we're thinking about maybe still doing it again but at at least getting into what 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 the thinking was and maybe is if we actually do it. So initially, we were thinking of this uh, of this concept as a user group instead of a podcast, where we just had a video call on Jitsi or Big Blue Button or something like that, and it would be 
kind of like a stitch and bitch where everyone could have their own projects that they were working on. And maybe sometimes we would have someone present. Maybe sometimes we would have just like a theme of the week or something like that, that we had a structured discussion or something like that. But instead of calling it a stitch and bitch, because we thought that was too specific to crafting in like the traditional fiber arts sense, we decided uh, we would call it something more like the hack and craft where we expanded crafting more broadly to include coding or doing digital art or things like that. So people could just kind of have this creative space where we could also talk about free software and free culture and et cetera, et cetera. And we've been saying for a while that we've been considering doing this, but I have been very distracted with writing a dissertation. But now that I am almost complete with that, uh, I think we can say safely that that will be something on the horizon that we are going to do. I would like to subscribe to your newsletter. <laughs> Excellent. So exciting. Yeah, so I think that it would be that would be a lot of fun. Of course, one of the major purposes of a user group is knowledge transfer. And uh, early earlier, Katie was talking about kind of like interacting with older generations and so on and kind of the transfer of knowledge between people in in meat space i guess but it it strikes me that there there is some significant value to also creating digital resources and even free culture resources and i saw by looking at the ich website or maybe even more accurately readme that there was some link to uh, just such a resource and i was wondering uh, katie would you like to talk about that yeah so one of the things that I specifically avoid is trying to teach people how to cross stitch because I don't really know like best practices and stuff like I can cross stitch, but it's like I don't want to be teaching people the wrong thing. And I had a uh, mention come up in one of my GitHub notifications saying, oh, can I add a link to ich in this carpentry that I've set up? And I have a look, and it's somebody has set up sort of like a software carpentry site, but it's cross-stitch carpentry, and it's literally an entire course designed to teach you how to cross-stitch, and ich is mentioned as one of the tools that you can use to make a pattern. And I thought that was really cool, and I actually learnt something how to do my own cross-stitching better based on this site. So I thought that was really cool. And it's an asynchronous resource that you can do because, you know, user groups aren't really a thing right now because pandemic still. But it's a way to transfer knowledge in one of the currently used mediums of GitHub pages. Well, and it's interesting because that, that carpentry setup is – we were talking – a little bit about the kind of intersections or lack thereof between crafting and the FOSS world, but that kind of software carpentry style setup with uh, cross-stitch carpentry is one of those interactions, right? Because you wouldn't necessarily think of most of the people who do cross-stitching as using GitHub, for example. Yeah, and it's just, it's a website that you can read and the prerequisites is being able to open a website and read it as opposed to mm-hmm. having to clone the website and do everything. There's a whole bunch of, like, transfer of knowledge is a whole bunch of implied prerequisites and everything. Like, oh, just install this and do this. It's like, I don't know what a terminal is. And having mm-hmm. spaces like this where you can ask those silly questions, as it were, it's there's there's a there's an entire separate dissertation about um 
kind and respectful transfer of knowledge and how you can absolutely get into these things and there are resources there to help you and people want to help you they don't want to laugh at you because you don't know how to properly make sure the back of your cross stitch looks okay and Mm -hmm. but there are going to be the crowd that's like oh your cross stitch back has to look like your front it's like hey no (laughs) literally not possible no one looks at the back no one looks at the back. I am just going to block this thing on foam core anyways, okay? Exactly. So you're saying that telling people in the craft space also to RTFM is probably about as helpful as it is in the FOSS space? Yes. Yes, let's just retire that phrase. Yeah, I mean, it's like, just install this wheel. Well, first of all, what's a wheel? How do I install it? Like, I don't know anything about these things. It's about as impenetrable as saying, oh, just do a loop start. What's a loop start? Yeah, just just grab some 14 count ADA. I mean, go ahead. Yeah, just grab some 14 count ADA and use two strands and like have at it. And, yeah. you know, someone's like, what? Uh, I don't know any of these words. What do they mean? Well, and obviously a wheel is something that you use to spin the yarn before you can embroider with it, right? Obviously, it's neither a piece of cheese nor a software distribution format. Nor a tire on a car. <laughs> no, it used to be eggs. So, yes. Language is murky, and meet people where they are and don't tell them to just RTFM, because that is rude. Yeah, one of the things I found really helpful as far as knowledge transfer goes, I mean, I don't have any family members that taught me how to do this, which is a pretty common way as to how Mm -hmm. people tend to learn the fiber art. So I I was kind of on my own to pick up a lot of this stuff. And I started watching FlossTube, not to be confused with PeerTube. Awesome. uh, where FlossTube uh, tends to be a community of people, uh, many of them women, uh, who share all sorts of tips and tricks with video demonstrations, sometimes slowed down and repeated like six times in order to be able to teach you different techniques. And so that was how I learned a lot of the cross-stitch techniques that I currently use now that uh, a lot of people will look at my cross-stitch work and say, oh, your back is so neat, or you know, you, you barely have any like trailing strands. Like, How did you do that? I was like, well, I watched a lot of YouTube videos, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, like, thank you, little old ladies, for teaching me. It's literally linting. <laughs> but uh, for, for clarity, uh, E. Ashman, is that floss tube as in free Libra open source software? No, and PeerTube is free Libra and open source software, but in fact, it is floss as in embroidery floss. Language. Yes, yeah, speaking of how language can be squishy. And I learned mostly, at least the beginning, of how to spin by watching YouTube videos as well. And it's just a resource that wasn't there, you know, 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago that makes things way more approachable. Because I used to hate looking at embroidery patterns or knitting patterns or cross-stitch patterns because I am dyslexic and it is just like a garbled mess of symbols that I didn't understand but watching a video where I can pause it and slow it down or replay it multiple times is just way easier for my brain to cope with. Yeah I mean I found a like trying to work out oh needle minders are a thing that you can buy and like I'd never used a needle minder before and I found a video about oh if you take an enamel pin that's got the stem on the back clipped off and you gorilla glue some rare earth magnets to it you can make a needle minder and it's like this 
wonderful grandmother um, who had a hundred videos on her channel, each of them with like 12 views. And it's like, you recorded this so you could teach people how to make needle minders. And so I made a needle minder and we worked out that E. Hashman and I have the same needle minder. <laughs> Must have come from the same factory in China. Yeah, I, I learned about needle minders from uh, Floss Tube as well, like watching videos. And I was like, grr, I keep losing my needles. And the most embarrassing one was I could not find this needle anywhere. I had no idea where I dropped it. Normally I would just stitch it through the fabric so I wouldn't drop it. Completely disappeared. And then I'm like putting my leg down on this pillow to like rest my leg and I suddenly feel scratched. It like it had stabbed like deep into the pillow. And uh, now like what's the other side? I, I mean it was a tapestry needle. It was yeah, fine. It, it didn't, didn't hurt me or anything like that. I was like, how did you get there? So I was like, I need to buy one of these needle minders and I found the cutest goose in the world, uh, who's named Cuthbert. Honk. And uh yeah, so now Cuthbert mines all of my needles when I'm stitching. And uh, Cuthbert Jr. was later born. Yes, which was a a goose slash swan insert from a random uh, succulent plant that I bought, and it fell off the stem that it was in the plant with. And so some Gorilla Glue and some Rare Earth Magnets later, I now have Cuthbert Jr. the second, which is a, now a needle minder. So speaking of knowledge transfer... I didn't actually know what needle minders were until today when we had this conversation, and now I know and I want one. They're so great. Uh, one of the knowledge improvements between going from tapestry to cross-stitch is the needles get sharper and they hurt more. Mm. Yeah. They do. And I have a different needle. I keep a different one for cross-stitch and for back-stitch because I find I have too much difficulty trying to poke holes in the fabric with a tapestry needle, especially when you have some of the stiffer Ada. And having a finer point to try to weave back and all that. So I think we're getting pretty close to the end of this episode. So I guess I'll use this opportunity to ask everybody, you know, what are you currently stitching or otherwise composing out of various threaded, fibrous materials? I can go first. I, I'm a giant nerd, uh, so one of the things that I want to do is bring more visibility and awareness about memory unsafety and why you shouldn't use memory unsafe languages. So I'm currently cross-stitching the logo of Fish in a Barrel, which is a group of security <laughs> professionals who are trying to get people to please write security-critical software in memory-safe languages, such as Rust. Fabulous. I am slowly trying to work out, do I frame my current project or do I actually finish it? As um, E. Hashman was a wonderful human being and sent out kits of cross-stitching to multiple people around the planet with unfortunately insufficient details that I as an inexperienced cross-stitch user ran out of a particular color mm. so I'm trying to work out do I frame it now as an exploration of how implied knowledge and uh, presumed requirements can still make art or do I finally find that one color and try to work out which color it actually is to finish this item before I frame it if you weren't in Australia I'd send you all the color you needed, but unfortunately shipping is $30 and the floss is like two. So 
you're probably better off doing it on your own. The problem is that I went to a Linkcraft and they didn't have your color and I haven't since been back. So I'm thinking I want to turn my mistake into an artful expression and make it like an actual placard, like one of those cool art museum placards that says, no, this is not a bug. It's a feature. Excellent. Well, I mean, you can always... Well, I haven't seen your project, so I'm not going to give you suggestions because I might just mess it up. Um, well, if you follow me on social media, we have uh, several hashtags that we've both started showing the progress of both our uh, cross-stitch work. Excellent. And also so the other people with the patterns, if they don't want spoilers, can mute the tweets. That makes sense. So currently I'm stitching the introduction of my dissertation through to the conclusion because that's due next week. But a couple of weeks ago when I was just waiting idly for my defense, I made my second ever quilt. And um, we talked at the top of the show about how cross-stitch is good for pixel art because you make a cross and that's basically a square, right? But the same can be said of quilting. So I made a pixel quilt. My my brother-in-law and sister-in-law are having a baby and their nursery theme is based off of the video game character Kirby. (gasps) So I made... A pixel art quilt of Kirby Aww. for a baby. It's so cute. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty proud of it. My top stitching was not great, but it's fine. No one will notice. That's what I found. The baby certainly won't. Baby won't care. <laughs> and if you get unlucky, the baby will keep that quilt like treasured 30 years later. So you can always see your bad stitching. Or maybe my brother and sister-in-law will keep it treasured somewhere and the baby will find it in 30 years and be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Look at this top stitching. What kind of monster decided that this was good enough for a baby? (laughs) Right. I made this quilt in less than a week because when I finished my dissertation and then when the baby shower was, I had like a three week period. And the first week was me being dead because I was just so burnt out. So... I did the top stitching using a sewing machine and it got ripply when I switched which direction I was sewing it oh. from. Oh no. So one of the one of the the rows you can like clearly see that it's bunched up because I flipped it. But it's fine. Chris, are you working on anything? Um so I know how to do mending and very small amounts of hand sewing. Ooh. Which is great. Everyone should know how to do basic mending. I don't. So you're ahead of me. <laughs> well, but I, I don't know anything else textile-wise. And I've actually wanted to learn how to use a sewing machine for over a decade. And actually, Morgan was trying to walk me through learning how to use a sewing machine a little over a decade ago. Maybe a decade and a half ago. Yeah, it was closer to a decade and a half. We weren't married yet. Yeah, and I had kind of parallels to, I think, things that end up happening to people in technical experiences. I had a bad user experience um, that made me really embarrassed to continue in the future in that I started using the sewing machine as per Morgan's instructions, and I didn't even do anything that were not Morgan's instructions. And the whole sewing machine broke. (gasps) Oh, no. 
It was not Chris's fault in any way. The timing went off, and then like the foot just stopped working. It was like two things. The needle, the needle broke somehow, and like jammed the apparatus. The needle broke because the foot shifted. So instead of going through the space between the foot, it tried to go through the metal part of the foot. Yikes. It, it, no, it doesn't go that way. So that made the needle bend at a 90 degree angle. Oh, wow. And then just the entire thing was like fused together because <laughs> it was like the fabric and the foot and the sewing machine. Just nothing was budging. So it was like a catastrophic failure that has never in my life happened to me. And Morgan's like, this isn't your fault. This is just like a, a fluke. It's not blah, blah, blah. But, you know, like I had that feeling of like, you know, oh, it probably was my fault. Like I probably screwed it up and I felt kind of too embarrassed to continue. But Morgan and I have both agreed to make commitments to attempt to both go through teaching each other a respective skill on this podcast. Something that we each have anxiety about. Yeah. So I'm going to take another shot at learning to sew on a sewing machine and we'll do a podcast episode about that and morgan what's your anxiety one that uh you're going to end up doing i'm finally gonna learn emacs Woo! Yes! Yes! so i had a similarly bad user experience that was not chris's fault it's part of the whole like when you've been using something for long enough you forget how people view it when they mm -hmm. haven't been using it so when i was learning how to program in python i was learning via the combination of tutorials and then chris helping and at one point i was stuck and i asked chris for help and instead of helping me in gedit on my computer they just pulled the thing up in emacs and like on Chris's computer, there's like three monitors and they all look functionally the same to me because I don't use Emacs and Chris just starts typing and talking for like five minutes and is like, see? And I just started crying because I didn't even know what monitor to look at. <laughs> well, it wasn't just that. I was looking straight ahead at my computer and my monitor and I was like splitting the window into multiple places and like the, the Emacs window so that like, and I was switching between buffers really quickly and like not even thinking about how I was doing all this and like copying and pasting things between things and just like, hacker, you're a hacker. Yeah, and my thing was like jumping all over the place and I hadn't, it hadn't struck me that this was an overwhelming and not helpful way to introduce somebody when like things are just flying all over the screen. And I'm like, and look, it's so easy. And I turn and I look at Morgan and like Morgan is like starting to tear up. And I'm like, oops, I did this wrong. And so then, then from then on, it's been a policy of like, I teach people in whatever program they're using in the, in the editor. Yeah, the editor that they already know, right? So Morgan was already learning G-Edit, so I did it in G-Edit. Well, if it makes both of you feel better, I am the worst Lisp packer in the world because I don't know how to use Emacs. I've used Vim since, like, 2010 or 2011, and I just have had no desire or incentive to learn Emacs, much to the chagrin <laughs> of other people that I've worked with. Uh, and I just used a sewing machine for the first time in my life because my parents didn't have one. Yay! Uh, and I sewed a scarf, square scarf, and it's lovely. Awesome. So I'm sure that it will go great for both of you. But honestly, I'm like more scared of Emacs if I had to pick. Well, one. I would agree, but I've been sewing since I was like 10. So actually probably younger than 10. 
Actually, I definitely remember giving a presentation in like my third grade class about sewing. So, well, I'm a member of the Debian Technical Committee, and I don't know how to use Emacs. So I feel like that should make it okay for everyone to not know how to use yeah. Emacs. I am a Google engineer, and I do not ha- know how to use Emacs. See, you're making me feel much much better about <laughs> about this experience. Well, I don't think it should be a requirement. For people to learn Emacs, but there's there there are some things where you've also watched me doing things, and you're like, I wish I could do that in my thing. So it's it's all what the goal here should not be to shame people for not knowing or doing things. It's instead to try to open up and make things accessible to people, yeah. which is I think a lot of the theme of this show and this episode in particular. I I hope at least yeah that, that episode will be yeah. about people going out of their comfort zones and learning new skills. It's okay if you don't know Emacs. It's okay if you don't know K2 Tog slip stitching. It's okay. It's okay if you don't know how to use a sewing machine. The best feeling when I'm sitting and writing code while somebody watches me is watching me do a cool trick in Vim. And they're like, how did you do that? I've been using Vim for a decade. And it's magic. <laughs> so, you know, uh, there's, there's both sides. I want everyone to be able to experience the magic. Well, and I think that any skill that you know, you've been working on for a decade or decades or whatever, no matter what that skill is, there's some things that are going to seem like magic to someone who's never done it, right? Bread baking. I bake bread. Yeah. And my friend is often like, I want to make this bread from this country that you've never been to. And I'll be like, well, I don't know anything about that. But she's like, well, (laughs) you know how to bake bread. And it's true. Uh, like breaking bread is just the skill and you know the recipe says oh well knead the dough until it's silky well what the heck does that mean or uh it would all the ingredients are by volume rather than by weight which means that the recipe is basically next to useless because you know you can try your best to measure by volume oh it also said that you could use uh whole wheat flour and wheat bran interchangeably which is definitely not true (laughs) so uh (laughs) So it ended up being like kind of a science experiment. Well, I kind of know what I'm doing and I know what this says the dough should look like. So let's do this. And then, of course, it didn't rise nearly fast enough, as it said. I'm like, no, no, trust me. Well, we'll just leave it like a little longer and turn out great. So that's what uh, like bacon bread for a few years will get you. Uh, And it's stuff that is just so non-obvious. I also feel like that fits in just to just to neatly tie this up with the idea of women's work and how it's often highly undervalued or just dismissed as simple. I think a lot of people have had an experience where they're in the kitchen with their grandmother and she's making something and just makes it look so simple and so magical and then try and do it themselves and it does not come out anything like their grandparents. Yeah, it's a thing that I see in software engineering too. A lot of people will tell me, oh, but like you make that look so easy or, you know, you've made this API so simple. And it's like, yes, it's simple, but simple does not mean easy. Yes. There is an enormous amount of engineering aptitude that goes into making things simple and meeting a lot of different constraints. And I think that that's kind of, uh, you know, something that really separates mid-level to senior engineer to somebody who's like, you know, a principal engineer or an artisan, right? It's mm-hmm. not just a matter of like, oh, but it, it looks so simple, looks so easy. Well, it is simple. It's deceptively simple. There's, you know, years, decades of energy and effort and expertise that went into that simplicity. 
I definitely, next time I have the opportunity to pair program with someone, I want to channel the grandmother in the kitchen where you get to mix the certain bits. I need to operate the oven, but you get to lick the beaters. Yes, and that's how I taught five-year-olds how to spin, too. I put their hands in place, and I put my fingers over their fingers, and then I had them spin it. I also think, going back to E. Hashwin's point, there's a difference between a simple solution and an elegant solution that looks simple, and it might take that 10 years of experience to get the elegant situation to look so simple, but the person who's new and watching just doesn't see all of the work that went into it. I think the summary there is there's a lot of interesting things to explore, and and we should be encouraging about... um, kind of diversifying the things that we do explore and keeping it fun and lower the amount of stress and pressure we're putting on people to explore those things. I don't know. I think that this episode was itself just a whole lot of fun. Thank you both Alana and Kate for coming and joining us. I think this is definitely one of the 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 most fun both FOSS and crafty episodes we've had on here. So uh, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having us. It was fun. All right. Okay, take care, everybody. Cheers. All right, thanks. Yay. Bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, and Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC01.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community in hash fossandcrafts at irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free. And stay crafty. Conspiring to overthrow yeah, the textile color, industry. Oh. Co- color color yeah. of the year is red tape. And both solutions would make a tasty sandwich. Yes, I'm very hungry now from this conversation. Me too. I want to bake bread. <laughs> I made bread yesterday. Wait, no, Ooh. it was this morning. I made the dough last night. Ooh. Baked it this morning. We have fresh bread. Yes. Jealous. <laughs>